You know you've got to sing along. Don't you know? This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups in HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is Charles Maxwood. Charles, you ready to be great today? Heck yeah. Charles Maxwood is a CEO and a podcast host at devchat.tv. His mission is to create a, a podcast for every programming community that leads developers to successful careers and meaningful lives. He is the author of the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Charles is, Charles is, is a soccer fan, Ruby on Rails developer, and podcaster. He lives in Utah with his wife, Heather, and their five children. Charles, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So, Charles, probably the most important question, who's your soccer team? Ray Al Salt Lake. So, you've been, are you a lifelong soccer fan or you just got started? Um, I was a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Italy for two years when I was 19. And um, I kind of got hooked on it there. Where were you at in Italy and what year were you there? I was there uh, through most of 1999 and 2000. Um, I was mostly in the northern and uh, northeastern part of Italy. So um, Tuscany. So I, I, I lived in a city about an hour, hour and a half by train from Florence. I lived over on the Adriatic coast. I lived in Verona, which is kind of in the middle north of Italy. And then um, I lived about an hour, hour and a half north of Venice. And that's where I finished out my mission, came home. So you know how they say it's a small world. When I was army, me and my family were in Vicenza from 01 to 03. Yeah, all that Vicenza, so I know that quite well. And, and a fu- funny soccer story, when we first got there, and the, the, the team in Vicenza, the fans would always ride, like tear the town up. So when there was a soccer a game going on, we, in the middle of, we could not go into Vicenza. We had to stay on yeah. post. We were not allowed to go into Vicenza because it, oh, really? it was just craziness. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a soccer match. It was Verona versus Venezia and it was in Verona. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't even remember how we got tickets. I think, you know, somebody who knew us got us tickets. And so we went and, uh, watched it and people were like lighting stuff on fire and throwing it on the field. And the, the team would come in and they had metal grating on the windows of the bus because people were throwing rocks at the opposing team coming into town. And, yeah. I mean, it gets real over there. There's no joke. Soccer is like yeah. life over there. Yep. Yeah. The, the memory that I have is I was living in Portanone, which is the city north of Venice. And uh, they had the Euro Cup. Um, and was it? No, it was in Verona. Anyway, it was one of those. It was Verona or uh, Portanone. But anyway, um, so yeah, we, we went, um, you know, we were trying to uh, meet people because we were teaching the gospel and um, nobody was out. <laughs> and so we went and sat in a little cafe with some folks and just chatted with them while we watched the soccer game. And um, we were like a block or two from our apartment. 
And uh, it took us a half hour to get a block or two home after because Italy won that match. And, uh, and it came down to penalty kicks, right? And so it, it was funny too, because you'd hear you, you, the door was open. So you could hear the street and it was dead quiet. And then Italy would shoot. And if they made it, then you'd hear uh, cheers echo down the street. And if, if France missed, then echo, you know, same thing, right? It, it was really funny. But yeah, it took us a half hour to find a safe time to cross the road to get to our apartment. And a joke when I was there in the army, the joke was, if Vicenza wins, it's going to be a riot. If Vicenza loses, it's going to be a riot. So either way, yeah. it's going to be a riot. Yeah. 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 But Vicenza is a cool town. Yeah, we had a great time. Great, I mean, great, just great food. Great, I mean, just we loved it there. This is just, just a great experience. Yeah, I, mean, I think just, that was an army base there. If yeah, I remember, right. yeah, we changed it there. Uh, Customer Italy is still there. It is a great experience. Just Europe in general. Like I tell people all the time, you have no idea what life is about if you just stay in your town. You know, and whatever it is in the United States, you know, you got to go travel. Yeah, Aviano Air Base was pretty close to Porto None, and so we'd go over there and and talk to Americans a lot. So. Good experience. Small world, as they say. So how many podcasts are you doing right now on DevChat? So DevChat.tv, currently we produce uh, 15 or 16 podcasts. Um, the reason that I'm kind of hesitating a little bit on the number is just because um, we, we've had some things going down over the last month. And uh, so some of the shows are getting produced like every other week while we you know, find new hosts and things like that. So... Yeah. Okay, so you're not doing all, all the hosting yourself. You have, you have a team of hosts in. Yeah, we have we have a bunch of hosts, and then we've also got um, uh, a production team as well. So, how, what was the idea for starting Dev Chat? How did this come about? So, in 2011, a friend of mine uh, tweeted something to the effect of, "Gee, I really wish there was a panel discussion show for Ruby developers." Um, if you're not familiar with programming. Ruby is a programming language. Um, you might have heard of Ruby on Rails, which is a web development framework. Um, and uh, anyway, so he tweeted that. I'd been listening to podcasts for a while and had gotten pretty involved in the Ruby community. Um, and I tweeted back and I said, let's do it. And I, by then, I'd been podcasting for about two years. So, or three years. I'd been podcasting for three years. So anyway, um, I reached out to him. I said, let's do it. And I was so gung-ho um, that uh, I went and bought a domain. <laughs> You know, uh, set up the website, uh, invited a bunch of other folks. Um, I mean, we, we were both involved in that, but I just, I just picked it up and ran and, uh, we got started. And then about six months later, a friend of mine came and said, Hey, I want to do the same thing you're doing, but for JavaScript. And so I tried to help him get that show started. And eventually I wound up just taking over and starting it. And he was on the show as a, as a regular panelist. Most of our shows are panel discussions. So. We'll have four or five regular people on every week. Um, started a freelancing show about the same time. A year or so later, we started an iOS development show. Um, a couple of years after that, some friends of mine came to me and said uh, that they wanted to start an Angular show. Angular is a front-end development framework. It runs in your browser. And uh, at that point, I had been talking for a while about starting a podcast network. And so that's how that came together is eventually I just put a website up and put all the shows on it and it all kind of worked out from there. So yeah. Um, and now we have, yeah, I started three shows the next year and three more shows the year after that. You kind of get the idea. So hey, was anyone else doing podcasts like this around the same time period? Or you're like pretty much one first ones to start this. Um, there were a few other shows. Um, I mean, mine were the panel discussion idea for me came from the twit.tv podcasts. 
um, where Leo Laporte and friends talk about technology. Um, the other guy, he was getting it more from, I think it was called Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And I don't know if that podcast is still running. But so the, the panel discussion idea kind of came out of that. Um, there were other podcasts on tech um, and on programming in particular. The one I was listening to was called Rails Envy, which isn't out there anymore. Um, some other folks were out there doing like uh, .NET Rocks, which is still running. And those guys are friends of mine. Um, but yeah, we kind of, in some ways, got a lot of this running. And I had a lot of people come to me and wind up starting shows patterned after our shows. So we were really, really early. But I can't, I can't take credit for being like the first ones out there in programming or of the panel style shows. So do you, do you have your podcast on Twitch also? Because I know the uh, This Week in Tech podcast it has, is on Twitch. You know, no, on Twitch we, don't also. we don't do any live streaming at all. Okay. Um, I have considered doing that. Um, we tend to turn off our video just because we're using Zoom. And with, once you get beyond like three or four people, um, the they'll degrade the audio in favor of the video, which is backward to me. But because of that, yeah, we tend to shut off video. I'm working on some some ways to make that better. But yeah, so no, we don't do live streaming. So for your podcast, what is the demographic you're trying to reach? Is this developers or people trying to hire developers? Who are you trying to reach? Uh, mostly it's developers or DevOps engineers. Um, and yeah, it just depends on the show, right? So the JavaScript podcast, we're talking about people either writing code for Node.js, which runs on the server or on your local computer um, or front-end developers. So you know, we'll talk about front-end technology as well. Uh, Ruby Rogue, same deal. Um, you know, for Ruby and yeah, it's mostly we're talking about software development for software developers. So are you like giving them less to learn? Like are you trying to like just teach them how to do basic coding or what all do you cover? Is this a different varying topics each time? It's, it's different topics every time. Um, a lot of it is uh, somebody wrote an article or gave a talk on how to do a particular thing. And so we'll talk about that. And then maybe the next week we'll, find a library out there that allows developers to do a certain thing with the language or framework they work in. And so we'll, we'll bring them on and we'll just ask them, okay, how is it put together? How is it designed to work? How do you build this into your, your applications, right? If you're doing Ruby on rails or angular or react or whatever. And yeah, so it, it can vary quite a bit. We've also had episodes on like productivity and ergonomics and accessibility. And so, um, I mean, anything that really applies to that uh, profession, community, or technology. But I know you hear in the news all the time that there's all these unfilled, you know, software developer jobs, empty software engineering jobs. You know, there's not enough developers out there. With all these unfilled positions, why do not more people become developers? Because it's hard. <laughs> I mean, in some ways it is, and in some ways it's not. But um, I think a lot of people have it in their heads that they have to be some kind of genius in order to do it. Um, the other thing is, is that companies, as much as there are these open positions, you really have to be able to do the job. And that usually takes a year or something, you know, depending on how you come into it. Um, but yeah, so you've got um, these boot camps that people will go to for three months or six months and they come out and they're still not ready to work. Right. There's, they still have some stuff to learn before they're ready to work for a company writing code. And so it's not just this automatic thing where people can just show up and, and get a job. 
you actually have to do some work in order to figure out how to do what it takes to do the job. And, and most companies aren't willing to just hire somebody off the street. They actually want to see that you are capable. And so it's, there is an on-ramp, right? There, there is a process for coming into the software development field. You can't just, you know, up and one day decide you're going to do this instead. I know in the Seattle area, you know, there's a lot of, you know, junior level jobs, but all the jobs are like entry level, but two years experience. So the new developer like, well, I don't have any experience. I just graduated from Kenma College. But I think there's like some kind of internship, some kind of portfolio, right? So you've done something. Yeah, there's some of that. Um, one thing that I found, though, with a lot of companies uh, today is that if they are willing to look at entry level people, they're going to hire, hire you more for attitude than they are for aptitude. In other words, if you have like some basic skill set, you come in, you can kind of demonstrate, okay, I know my way around uh, React or Vue or, you know, whatever language they're using, Java. Um, and you can also demonstrate that you have the ability to learn and that you'll fit in well with the team, you know, in the way that they work, then they'll hire you anyway and they'll train you on the job. You, so somebody, if somebody had to pick between a code and cameo or a degree, any advice on which one they should go to or does it really make a difference between um, the two? Unless you need to do the four-year degree, go to a, book, a coding bootcamp. The reason is, is because the coding bootcamp focuses on specific skills that you're going to need on the job. And they cost less than a four-year degree and they take a lot less time. Uh, just keep in mind that once you go to the bootcamp, um, it, you're still going to need like six months to a year to kind of uh, get enough experience and um, you know coding under your belt to really get hired. Um, some of the boot camps r- will run you for you know six months or a year, and and those tend to prepare you better, um, and and you're more likely to get a job right out of those than you are out of like the three month or you know six week boot camps. But that said, you know it, it really boils down to I guess to how self driven you can be. To continue your learning, so if if you're not going to do it without the structure of the boot camp, then go to like Lambda School for a year, or you know, um, go find some you know junior college and get a two year degree or something. Um, if you can be self directed, then go get the kind of the jump start that you're going to get out of a, a three month boot camp or a six week boot camp, and then go build stuff, build a ton of software for a year. And keep applying to places and talking to people so you know what you need to know in order for them to want to hire you. How should a developer go about picking what code they're, they're going to learn? I mean, there's so many code, code languages. How do you pick which one to use or learn? Or Because I don't think it's realistic on all of them, is it? You have to no, pick one no, two, no, right? no, no. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, there are a lot of options. And, and some people are like, well, just go with the most popular one, right? So in, in JavaScript, that would be React. In, you know, backend, you know, a lot of it's Node.js or Python. Um, it, it really depends because I, I am a big proponent of picking things that are going to make you happy. And so go try them. Go try a bunch of them, right? And see what kind of uh, hits all of your buttons. If you're looking for kind of the future-proofed or, uh, you know, technology choices you can learn now, what I would do if I were picking... And I was thinking, okay, you know, I want, a jo- I want a job path, a career path that's going to last me a while. I would learn Python and machine learning um, because AI machine learning is growing like crazy. Um, there are probably more open jobs in those fields 
than probably any other technology at this point, and it's only growing. Um, but the flip side is, is that if if you try out Python, you don't like it, <laughs> then go do something else because there's there's plenty of other work out there. No, no, I could be wrong, but regardless of what code language you pick, it's always going to get updated, new changes. So, how, how what's the best way to develop to keep up to date? I mean, besides this, I guess they've got to put work in to write a study and and professor development on right. I've already written one book on how to find a job. Um, I think my next book is going to be on this particular topic. And the reason is, is because people ask all the time, they're like, well, what should I be learning? What do I need to know? Um, and, and they get, they get kind of overwhelmed with it, right? Because it's not just that it's changing all the time. It's that, that it's, there are a lot of things changing all the time. Um, if you're in an older technology, it tends not to change as much, right? So when I got into my career, Ruby on Rails was kind of exploding. And Ruby itself was exploding in all of these different areas. And so keeping, keeping on top of all of it was tough. Now, because it's a mature technology, it's pretty easy to stay on top of what's going on in Ruby. Um, you know, and so if you're working in the field, you spend a, a little bit of time every week and, and you can pretty much keep tabs on it. But uh, JavaScript, for example, or uh, machine learning, I mean, that stuff is growing and changing so fast that it's really, really hard to know exactly what things to chase and what you want to learn. So what I tell people is, first of all, you have to know where you want to end up. Okay. So if you think that eventually I want to wind up on the management track, then you just want to be learning whatever the current state of the art is and just stay very much right down the middle. Um, and the reason is, is because then you're going to have enough knowledge to where once you kind of prove out that you've got the people skills and learn the people skills too, because you're going to need them. Um, then you can, you know, then you can start making the the choices to, okay, um, now there's a new technology out there, but I'm the manager. I don't need to necessarily know the technology forward and backward, but you're still conversant about how the technology works because you've kind of stayed mainstream. Um, if you want to uh, do something different, you know, and, and let's just stay within the machine learning arena, for example, and you're looking at things, um, and you're thinking, yeah, you know, I want to be, you know, on the cutting edge of this particular area, then specialize, right? So you can specialize on computer vision, or you can specialize on, um, you know, behavior mapping of some kind, or, you know, one of the other uh, areas within machine learning, and just go deep on it. Um, and then and that, that narrows what you have to worry about learning, because other stuff doesn't matter, right? So if you're focused on computer vision, then some of the other, you know, decision-making or recommendation engine type machine learning, you don't have to learn. And so, um, you know, you can focus on that particular area and that makes it easier, but uh, you have to first know what you want to, where you want to end up. And if you don't know, then just, just pick one broad field and just get an introductory um, knowledge of it. And then what you can do from there is you can say, okay, I like this, but I don't love it. And so then you can move on to the next one. And when you find something that really lights you up, then like I said before, just go as deep as you can on it. And the other thing is, is that a lot of people feel like if I go learn this one thing, I can't learn this other thing. And that's true. But the decision to go deep on one particular area doesn't preclude you from being able to do that in another area later. And a lot of the skills are transferable, right? Um, computer vision and recommendation engines are going to use some of the same algorithms, some of the same technologies. And so even if you go deep on one and then you realize, you know what, the other one is really much more in line with what I, how I think or what I want to do, you can switch later. It's not permanent at all. And so then what you do is 
you go find the places where people are having those conversations. Make sure you're going to any meetups or things like that that are related to it. And um, talk to a ton of people and find out what they're doing in those areas so that you can be learning those things. Charles, from your point of view, what makes a great developer? What kind of characteristics or skills make a great developer? You know, it's funny because, um, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, when I got into things, I got into things about 14 years ago, um, into software development professionally anyway, about 14 years ago. Um, A lot of it was still very much based around the technology. And it was like, look, how deep is your technical knowledge? And the, the deeper you knew the knowledge and the faster you could crank code out, that, those were the skills. That is not the case anymore. Um, and, and people still focus on the technology. And it's because it's easy, right? If it works, it's right kind of thing. But um, the problems that we're solving now are so interconnected with other problems because of the internet and the way that we write technology. And that requires us to work with other people who are building the other parts of the solution to the overarching problem we're solving. Due to that, um, a good developer is able to, yes, look at the technical problems and, fig- and figure out the solution they need, but they also have to be able to work with other people. And if you cannot work with other people, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how good you are with the technology. It doesn't matter how deep your knowledge is because at the end of the day, eventually the business you're working for is going to figure out that you don't work well with other people and that they need you to, and they'll let you go. And so if you want to be successful and you want to be able to write solid software, you, your ability to work with other people is as important as your technical knowledge. That's a good point. I think the stereotype used to be the developer in the corner coding 20 hours a day with a box of pizza and Mountain Dew. But me personally, every developer I know is, a, is like, has good people skills and a good teammates, you know? So I think that, that, that stereotype has definitely changed. Yeah, you have to. I mean, to a certain degree, right? I've been working on my own software for podcasters, right? And I have another developer that I've hired that's helping me out with this. And so the only, the only developers we work with are each other, right? But he still has to interface with my team in order to figure out what they need in order to you know, build that stuff. And so do I. Um, and so even if you're just the one tech guy in the company, you still have to work with all the other people in the company. And so it's still important. The other thing is, is that, yes, technology is getting to the point where you can kind of go out and build your own web app on your own if it's simple enough and you don't really have to work with other people. But at the end of the day, you're going to wind up, if you're going to put it out there for other people to use, you're going to wind up interfacing with the people that you're selling it to or getting to use it. And so there, there's just no way around it. Um, you know, you can do things to minimize that that, right? So if you're not good at people, you know, you can hire somebody or bring on a partner or things like that. So you don't have to, you know, and then whoever you bring on has to deal with your quirks. But, um, you know, outside of that, if you want to go work for anybody else, if you want to work on a team or in a startup, you have to have those skills and you have to be able to talk to the board and whoever else, if you get investment and all of that stuff. And it's all just part of the package anymore. For developers first job, would you recommend they go the freelance route go for a startup or go work for a large corporation or does it matter? Um, so if you're a free, if you're, if you're new, it's, it's hard, right? To go freelance because a lot of companies are going to want to be able to, you know, they want you to be able to be self-directed. They want you to be able to, you know, look at the problem and solve it the right way the first time. And if you're new, you just don't have the experience to do that. 
Um, that said, there are systems like, for example, if you wanted to get into React, I have a brother-in-law actually who um, he, he works for a cabinet maker <laughs> and uh, you know, he wanted to get into web development. He lives in this tiny town in Southern Utah. And he's like, so how do I get a job? And I said, well, you, you've got to go, you know, you can go to a boot camp or something. He's like, well, I can't, they've got like five kids and you know, he just doesn't have the time to do it. And so he's been learning on his own. And I was like, well, then go pick up Gatsby, right? Cause it's a system that's built on react. That's relatively simple. has a lot of plugins. It's very approachable. It doesn't matter that his, uh, his experience level isn't that high. And then he could go build websites on Gatsby for all of the local businesses, right? And because he's local, he has a shoe in and, and that gives him an advantage. But, you know, if you're not in that kind of a position where you have that kind of an advantage for him, it's a locality advantage. Um, going and working for a startup or for a, um, a larger company is, is the better deal. Um, they offer different advantages. And so it probably depends more on personality at that point, right? So if you want mentorship, you want structure, you want predictability, the bigger company is probably the better bet. If you want to go in and solve all these problems by the seat of your pants and you want challenges that, you know, even experienced people aren't going to run into, um, you know, within a given year on a normal relative basis, then the startup is the way to go. But if you're new, the other thing to keep in mind is that they're not going to hire you as a co-founder. They're going to hire you as, you know, the number two, three, four, five, six, you know, developer the, in the company. You'll probably get equity. But the flip side of that is also that um, the startups tend to try and conserve cash while they're growing. And so you're a good option for them because you don't cost as much. And so as long as you can do the work and you're willing to take some initiative, startups are a really great way to go. And you get a ton of varied experience doing that. Um, incidentally, my first job as a developer was actually working for um, a consultancy. And so I wound up working on two different apps over the year that I was there. And, uh, but I was working with a senior developer that basically mentored me through that first year. And, and that's the kind of situation you're going to wind up at is I worked for two different startups, um, you know, as, as, as my clients. And, uh, I had somebody who could kind of hold my hand if I got stuck. Yeah. I'm building my own HR tech startup. And I'll tell people all the time, like this equity I'm offering you, it's the same as me telling you, you see the product go to the end of the rainbow, you're probably not going to get it. Right. So, so is there a difference between a software developer and a software engineer? Um, I see them used pretty interchangeably. It te I tend to see more people who have some kind of education, especially an engineering degree or um, people who want to just, you know, make the case that they're as smart or as important as like the mechanical or civil engineers. Right. But yeah, there, there, there tends not to be a major difference there. Um, the, the distinction that I usually see is like software architect versus software developer. And the architect is looking at the overall structure of the application and is giving direction there where the developer just goes in and implements the parts. And so it's the same thing as like your architect versus your builder contractor in regular, um, you know, like physical building stuff. So let's say there's someone out there, they have an idea to build a company. They have no tech experience. They need to bring on developers. What advice do you have for them to bring on developers? Go write code for three months and then hire a developer. That's actually great advice, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I hate to say it because I've, 
you know, I was freelance for six years. I worked with um, all kinds of people from all different walks of life. Um, a few people got around it by essentially having a, like a tech advisor. So one of my first clients had a brother-in-law that had helped build Dentrix, which is a dental office management software. And so his, his brother-in-law actually interviewed me and hired me right for him. And then from there, I went around and actually did most of the work to our architect and build the, the applications. Um, but barring that, you know, go write code. And there are, there are coding tutorials out there that'll get you going and you don't have to be at the professional level, but you have to be familiar enough with the technology you're going to use to be able to tell if somebody knows what they're doing. And so if you do it for three months, then you can decide, um, you know, what you actually need and then go find somebody who is at a higher proficiency than you are. When we're hiring a developer, how long should it take you to realize that they're doing the job and not doing the job? Like how long should you get a developer to get on board and learn stuff? And realistically, a couple weeks. Um, if if you're doing like a brand new startup, and the reason is is because, and this is a mistake I see people make all the time too, right? Is they hire a developer and then they just assume the developer is going to do the work, and so the, you know they come back after three months and they're like, well, this isn't what I wanted. Um, and and I would push my clients to talk to me, right? Hey, let me show you what I've got, and then. Um, you know, you can give me feedback and some of them wouldn't. And so you, then they'd come back after two or three months and say, okay, what have you got? And I'd show them and it fit the specification they gave me and was absolutely not what they wanted. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I had the technical proficiency cause I had built an app, right? Uh, like a real life app, but it wasn't what they wanted. So what you want is you sit down with them on a regular basis. I recommend at least once a week. Um, have them show you what they've built, um, go play with it a little bit and see if it works. And, you know, if you do that for two, three, four weeks at, you know, four weeks on the outside, you'll know by then whether or not they're capable of doing what you need because you're going to be seeing them work. Uh, go do code reviews, go look through the code. Even if you're not a pro, you know, go look through it anyway. Cause if you can't read it, then they probably can't debug it. And, uh, you know, you can, you can figure that out. And then if they don't work well with you, that's just as big a red flag as whether or not they're technically capable. And so if, if you can't make it work with them, then yeah, try and figure out what you're lacking there. Cause it might be you, but you know, at the end of the day, if you can't get the work to work between the two of you, then go find somebody else. And one lesson I learned early on, I had no clue about this. Like, like for example, usually you, you'll tell someone, hey, we're starting at one, I want you to get from one to 10, right? And you assume they're going to go one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine, 10. But in reality, with developers, it's more like not one to 10, but 1. 1, 1.1, 1.12, 1.13. You got to go down like almost like Nets details, right? Every, the more detail, the better. That's something I didn't, I didn't know at first. It was, a, it was a tough lesson for me to learn that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's one thing. The other thing, though, is that sometimes you don't need to specify to that level, um, but you need to make sure that the developer understands what they're building. Um, the other thing is, is that a really good, if you're hiring a freelancer or a co-founder, uh, the other thing to know is that um, a really good developer will actually sit down and ask you the right questions, right? And so, um, yeah. So, and and if they're not asking you the right questions, ask them the questions to make sure that they understand what you want. Um, and, and that's totally fair too, right? So, you know, just, okay, so I'm looking at having it work like this, you know, how are you planning on putting some of this together? 
it'll get you a long way toward, well, I was, I was going to hook this up so that a user connects to this other, you know, uh, an account or something, or, um, you know, uh, uh, an invoice connects to a line item connects to a inventory entry. And, you know, if they can explain that to you, then you know that they get what the problem is. But if they say something else, then you know that they've gotten an interpretation that's not quite right. And you can head it off. If you can do that early, then you wind up not spending the money for them to develop something you don't need. So for, for developers, what's, what's the career path? Is it like junior developer, senior developer, then quality assurance? Or what's the career path usually for? It, it really depends. Um, my career path was um, tech support. Um, and I finished my, my computer engineering degree while I was working in tech support. And I'd been a systems administrator before that. Um, but I, did, I ran the tech support department. Then I moved to QA. And then I got hired as a full-time software developer. Um, I know a lot of people that they just write code. They write code on their own for a while. And then they finally convince somebody to hire them. And they kind of get in as a junior developer. But uh, even then, the, the junior developer, senior developer distinction is not clear. And so, and like at my first job, I was working at a consultancy, right? So what did they want to bill me as? Senior software developer. So I was junior software developer literally for like a couple of weeks while they onboarded me. And so I had done most of my junior software development stuff um, while I was in QA and running the tech support department at my previous job. And then I was, you know, I was given the title senior software developer because they wanted to bill me for more money. And so it, it depends. Um, most people will wind up working for a company, their first company for a year or two. And then they'll figure out that they can go get a 50% raise somewhere. Um, and then they'll wind up going somewhere else. Charles, what's your opinion on, on companies outsourcing uh, software development? So it's like India, Eastern Europe, or places like that. Is a is software developer the same everywhere? Or is, it, or is it different skill levels? Or does it just depend... It really depends on the developer. I mean, I've worked with developers from India, from Ukraine, from Russia, um, from all kinds of different places. What it really boils down to is the level of communication you have. And so if there's a language barrier, that'll affect it, um, right? Because you'll say something and they may not understand what you're telling them. Um, There are also cultural differences but I find that that usually mostly just affects expectations, right? And so if you are familiar with the culture and you're familiar with how that affects what you should expect from them, then you can make it work just fine. So, you know, yeah, I mean, a lot of people outsource to other countries because they want to save money. And just, you know, in my own case, right, I have a developer working for me on this podcast software. He's in Malaysia. And, but, but the thing is, is that, um, we communicate every week and, you know, I'm consistently giving him feedback and he's consistently telling me where he's at and, you know, solves problems for my team and the whole nine yards. And so we have a very clear set of expectations and a very solid foundation for communication. And if you can, if you can get those two things in line, um, then yeah, outsource to another country. That's fine. Um, but if you're not willing to do the work to make the communication happen, you just want to outsource it, pay the money and get the software back. You're going to run into problems and you're going to run into problems if they're remote here in the States too. 
you know, it's just a little easier because you have the same cultural and language context to work from. So Charles, you know, obviously developers can work remotely, but is that, is that actually the best way to work with them? Is it better to work in person with developers or does it really matter? Does that not matter? It, it depends on who's involved and whether or not they're willing to do the work. I'll tell you that um, there are companies that require the developers to be on site and they have good reasons for it. Um, but I've also worked on a number of teams that worked really, really well remotely. And everybody was happier because they had the flexibility of working remotely. Um, so at the end of the day, it really just boils down to the people involved. I mean, um, and, and remote work is just going to be a reality in the future, right? So, um, yeah, I have a hard time endorsing one or the other. I think it really just depends on the people involved. So Charles, you, uh, I'm pretty sure you heard this story, but it was on the news a couple of weeks ago, maybe, maybe a month ago where there's, there's this developer, you got our, get our source to do some work for a company. He has stuff that works at somewhere in China. So the company was paying like a hundred fifty thousand a year. He's paying the guy in China fifty thousand to do all the work for him. And, he, and of course, he finally got caught, right? So I thought that was like kind of crazy, right there. I tend to be pretty free market ish on on that kind of thing. I I actually had some subcontractors in like Brazil that I was paying considerably less than I was making on them. But the difference was was that, and and my client knew that I was hiring people to work under me and he knew that I was hiring them internationally and that I was probably making, you know, a good chunk of change on, uh, you know, on that arrangement. The difference was, was that the client wasn't qualified to actually hire anybody else. Right. They, they didn't have the tech expertise. And so they were paying, they were paying me like my management time was tied up in that cushion that I made on that development. So I mean, you know, to some degree, yeah. If he's billing out $150 an hour and, you know, the other guy is is billing out at $50 an hour, it it does feel a little bit like a ripoff for the, you know, the company that hired the the primary contractor. But the flip side is is that you know, if if his contract allowed that, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't think it allowed it though. Yeah, if the contract didn't allow it, then he's in breach of contract and he owes him money. But um, yeah, you know, if it, if it allows you to find subcontractors, I mean, as long as the work's getting done and it's worth it to the company. And, and toward the end of my freelance career, that's actually what I would do is I would sit down with the company and say, okay, what's this project worth to you? And they'd tell me a million dollars, right? And so I'd be like, okay, great. Then if I can get it done for $100,000, then you get a 10x return on investment, right? And that's how I would bill it out. And then if I wound up hiring out the work to somebody else, as long as it got done, got done well, there were no security problems, there were no functionality problems, but you know, then I'd give them all kinds of guarantees that I felt like I could provide for that price. And, and, that, and that, that was always a way better way to go. And then it fit in with their budget, you know, and, and they felt like they were getting a good deal. And then it didn't matter as much anyway. Charles, what's your, what, what's your vision for the dev.tv so devchat.tv, um, I mean, you read it at the beginning. I want to have a, a podcast for every programming community. Um, and yes, there are a lot of programming communities out there. And there are a bunch of tiny ones for older languages or not well-known languages. But I, it, 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 people are looking for opportunities to grow. Not everybody has the opportunity to, say, go to a conference or... Um, you know, work with um, world-class developers or things like that. 
And so I can bring a lot of that content to them, right? I can bring the world-class developers onto the podcast and talk about the things that they would talk to these people about if they were working with them. I can bring the conference speakers on and we can talk about the things that they're talking about at the conferences. I can introduce them to developers who are working on the same parts of their journey that the listener is listening to. And all of those things kind of feed into this idea that then the developers can make the decisions that they need to in order to be successful in their careers. But career is not everything, right? Work is not everything. Um, you know, you have kids, you have a spouse, you have, you know, maybe you don't even have that. Maybe you just have a bunch of dogs or cats or something like that. And you like to surf on the weekend. I mean, but whatever it is, you know, you shouldn't be living for work. You should be living for, you know, whatever fulfills you. And so if work is that, I guess maybe you are living for work, but for the most part, people, um, find meaning in their lives through other things. And so I, I want a successful career to back into a happy life and a meaningful life. And so whatever meaningful is to you, right? If it's surfing or if it's, you know, um, donating all your money to building schools in third world countries or whether meaningful is, I just am able to take care of my mom when she gets old. I mean, whatever that that's, that's where I'm looking to, to get to. So, um, I mean that that's the mission and that's kind of the grand vision. How we get there is, I mean, right now we're, we're just starting new podcasts. And so, you know, we have a machine learning podcast that's going to start next year, early next year. Um, we've already recorded three or four episodes of that one. Um, I have another show that I'm starting with uh, a company that's in the development training space. And they kind of tend to treat, they treat a lot of different subjects, but kind of the big one is software architecture and team building. And so, you know, I've teamed up with them and we're going to be put, producing that show starting early next year. Again, um, we, we've got, yeah. So um, the other shows I want to start are just larger communities like the Java community and the Python community. Um, we started a show for the .NET community, which is Microsoft's technology stack. Um, and yeah, just give people the, the knowledge that they need so that they can succeed. Um, so yeah, so I kind of envision this over the next probably three to five years. I, I think we're going to wind up adding another 10, 15, maybe even 20 shows um, on various topics that are relevant to software developers. And, you know, just creating the high quality content that they need so that they can make good decisions and be successful and lead meaningful lives. And and that's kind of the grand vision. Um I have people asking if we're going to put out more products. I mean, ultimately, the only thing that I have out right now is the book on how to find a job. That's on Amazon. So, I mean, it's not, I, I don't even sell it myself, right? Um, you know, and I, I'm planning on writing more books. Um, I may come out with courses at some point. We'll see. But um, yeah, I mean, the, for the most part, that's, that's the way it runs. We make money on the advertising on the podcasts. So that's, that's how we keep the doors open. Charles, can you share your social media link so people can reach out to you? Yeah. So on Twitter, it's C Max W Max is my middle name. So C Charles C Max W um, on GitHub. I'm the same. So if you're looking for code stuff that I'm working on, uh, that's all there <clears throat> on Facebook and LinkedIn is Charles Max Wood. Um, I think that's probably it. You can find a lot more information about me at devchat.tv. Um, that's where all of our podcasts live as well. 
And for our listeners, we'll have a lot of social media links on our, on our, on our show notes. And you can find the show notes at www.cavernshrblog.com. Be sure to um, rate, review, subscribe, and share the Cavern's HR podcast. So we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you provide us any last minute wisdom or advice or anything you want to talk about? The, the one thing that I've been on lately just talking to people about is that I have people come to me and they give me all kinds of reasons for why they can't do what they want to do, right? So some people believe that because they're of a certain minority or gender that they, you know, they have some kind of disadvantage at doing this or, you know, because I grew up poor, because I don't have a four-year degree or because, um, you know, my circumstances just didn't line up or I've got uh, the, the joke I always make is as 18 kids and 14 cats, I've got 18 kids and 14 cats and I, I just can't, right. I don't have time because, you know, realistically my, my time is tied up with other things. And the reality is, is that I've seen people in all of the circumstances except 18, 18 kids. And the thing that overwhelmingly has been demonstrated over and over again is that if you want it and you'll work for it, you can have it. And so, you know, if you're disadvantaged uh, financially, if you're disadvantaged educationally, if you feel like the deck in society these days really is stacked against you, I could probably argue that point both ways. And sometimes I do, right? Even if you're right, that I've seen people come out of extraordinarily hard circumstances to be successful software developers. And what it really boiled down to is that they just got to work. So if you're looking for some movement, some advantage to this, I mean, the, the biggest advantage is just to get to work. And if I can add one other thing is that I have a lot of people come to me and say, I'm 50 or older and I don't think I can learn to code. And I have seen so many people make the career transition. They were accountants for 30 years. And it's like, and then I got into software development and I, you know, I made the transition and they're being successful. So you're never too old. You're never too poor. You're never, I mean, you know, unless you have a real cognitive disability that makes it just impossible for you to grasp these concepts, you should be able to do it. Even if you're dyslexic or have some kind of learning disability, it really is just going to boil down to the amount of work you're willing to put in. Charles, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm glad to come and help. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cabinets HR Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and TikTok at Cabinets HR. Also check out our weekly live streams at the Cabinets HR Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Periscope, where we focus each week on an HR topic important for small business. These are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and last around three minutes. To join our weekly HR email newsletter list, send us an email to jasoncabinets at cabinetshr.com. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. You've got to pump it up, don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up.